Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, regular listeners. You may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well... That and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Sarit Packer. I'm Itamar Srulovich. Welcome to the fourth season of The Honey and Cook. This season we'll be joined by authors that have written cookbooks that are so much more than just a simple cookbook. They are taking us into their world. We're going to talk to artists, to travelers, to home cooks, professional chefs. We're going to look at books that take us to a specific time or a specific place or change the way we look at cookbooks or change the way we cook or try to do it anyway. We hope you enjoy listening. Tonight we're joined by a legend of the food world, Sebel Kapoor. She is one of the more prominent voices in British food writing today. She was one of the first people in the late 80s, early 90s to write about modern British cooking and what it is about cooking with local vegetables, cooking seasonal, which is such a buzzword today. She was one of the first people to talk about this. I've learned about the difference between flavor and taste, something I was aware about but never really understood until tonight. I think there's so much to learn from this talk, from this book. I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Sybil Kapoor, uh, where to start, illustrious chef, one of the most important food writers of our time. Can I say that? Yeah, can I say that? Yeah. I'm getting very embarrassed here. Yeah, yeah, why not? Why not? We'll give you like a very Aww. excruciating 30 yes. seconds and then we'll uh, be horrible to you. That's good. No, yeah. we're not. We're not going to. <laughs> um, I mean, you are kind of reached a certain level of uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, Age. Sort of no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Authority, Authority yeah. shall we say, in in the food writing world, and how how it all started for you? How, how did you get to to this? to this planet food? Very, very modestly, and by and like a lot of food people, by accident. So basically my parents were very Victorian, and they made me, they said that I couldn't go to university, I wasn't allowed to, because I was a girl. I had to go to secretarial college. Because you um, can always find work? Because I could that, always, that was the there, there was two rationale, one that you could find work, and two that you were going to get married, and why waste money on somebody's education if they were going to get married? Solid sense. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, um, 
I didn't have much choice, so I went to Secretarial College and I became a secretary for about a year. And I was the world's worst secretary and I absolutely hated it. And a friend of mine's um, sister was working in director's dining rooms. We're talking about the 70s. So she said, why don't you go and work in a director's dining room? Do you know, you can earn some money, you can stop being a secretary and just, you know, see how you go. And I fell in love with it. That was it. I was peeling potatoes, cutting up onions and um, just thought, this is heaven. In those days, you acted for temporary agencies and you went round and um, I would insist they sent the recipe to me before, not the recipe, the menu. And I'd take the recipe and I'd experiment on these poor men. Luckily, most of the time they wanted steak. <laughs> it wasn't my strong point. No, but it's, I mean, it's a solid place to start. <laughs> it's a, well, I got fired quite a few times. <laughs> anyway, a, a recession came along and there was a ad in the Times for Justin de Blanc and he was a very famous restaurateur and he had a restaurant in the ICA and it Where was the Rochelle Cantine is now. Yeah, the Rochelle Cantine. And it was just like that. It was an amazing place. We got food in from the French market, Sarongis. Um, we were paid nothing, so we did quite a lot of shoplifting, I'm afraid. <laughs> and we had lots of barbecues and parties. But the cooking was amazing. They had lots of recipes. We made everything from scratch, you know, yogurt, um, cheesecake. Um, bread was made in a, his own bakery. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I thought restaurants were like this. And so I went and did a course at least for three months. And then I started the real restaurant world and discovered that they weren't. <laughs> that you few, were, few and far between. Few and far between, yeah, yes. Yeah. yes. And, and from there, I sort of had lots of highs and lows, but sort of carried on. I mean, that, that's the thing with this uh, industry is that it can be, when it's good, it's great. But when it's bad, it's so horrible. It's hell. It's soul destroying. Yes, and you yes. need to kind of find your trail yes. to between yes. the, the places yes. that fit you, actually. Yes. But you were quite lucky. You had you found some good fits on the way. I did. You had a stint in New York. And yes, with, yes. With Sally Clark, so covered a lot of ground. I did. I mean, um, I, I would say that the, the change happened actually here at a place called the Ebury Wine Bar, which was actually quite well known then. And um, I got it into the Good Food Guide and I worked with another girl and we were cooking from every single book that we could lay our hands on, including Chez Panisse's cookbook and things. And, and the th this is the kind of the time that... You had um, Nouvelle Cuisine on Nouvelle the other cuisine, hand and yeah. then the New Rustic Well, new Rustic, new Rustic hadn't come into the UK. The first sign was this book, which was everybody's sort of, my God, what's this? I was very bad at Nouvelle Cuisine because I couldn't do the incy-wincy bits. I was hopeless. I was just like a hands-on, plonk it on the plate, but make it look wild and wonderful, which wasn't really very popular here. <laughs> no. So I went to New York. In the, in the age of the raspberry coolie. In the age of the raspberry coolie, yeah, exactly. And Blanche, Marge too. Marge too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And my, my husband was doing research in New York and we, I managed to have a work permit to go there. And I got this amazing job at Jam's restaurant because it had been offered to the waitress in the Ebury Wine Bar and she, she suggested I went instead. It was a revelation because basically... Uh, it was a restaurant called Jams, a guy called Jonathan Waxman. He'd worked at Chez Panisse and then a restaurant called Michael's. And he was the first person to bring Californian food to New York. This is 1985-86. Everything was home-sourced, home you know, local to the New York area. We had mesquite grills. We did French fries, which had to be huge piles. 
try not to hit the microphone, my demonstration. Huge piles of colourful vegetables, French-style sauces, homemade pasta, very colourful, evocative food and everything based around the mesquite grill. Which sound, sound like it could have opened yesterday. Yes, yes. Yeah. And it was, we had Woody Allen, we had Jackie and Nassis, it was very glamorous. And we used to order pizza because our staff food was very bad <laughs> around the back. <laughs> and, uh, but it was, it was a fantastic experience. And it changed how I thought about food. Um, because I suddenly realised that you could really do local food and you could start interpreting what was your indigenous food. What, what did it really mean? And Jonathan had, in a previous life, gone out with Sally Clark. So he said, well, I was coming back to England. So he said, ring up Sally. So I did. And she had just opened Clark's. And I was offered the head chef job there. And so I was Jonathan Sue by the time I left. And uh, actually, there's a funny story about that, but maybe I'll tell it at the very end if we've got time. <laughs> no, I think now, now, now you have to tell this, it. This is the difference. Are there any Americans in the audience? Yeah? Oh, well, yes, of course you are, yeah. <laughs> well, there's a difference in psyche between Americans and the British. And in Britain, you in those days anyway, you never, never asked to be promoted. You waited for somebody to realise that you were brilliant and offer you the next position up. In America, uh, I was went in at salads, which was the lowest you could go in. And I'd been there a few months and nothing was happening and I was still on salads. And I handed in my notice. I was just so, you know, I thought, I'm never going to get anywhere here. They said, why are you leaving? And I said, well, I haven't been promoted. And they said, why didn't you ask? So I said, well, I didn't know I had to. So, they, so I said, OK, I want to be promoted to veg. So they said, said, great, veg. So off I went. So I thought, mastered veg after. And I thought, this is a bit boring. So I waited about a month, I think it was. And then I said, OK, I want to do sauces. <laughs> At least by then you learn. Yeah, what I learned. You need I learned, I learned. So they gave me a funny look, and they said, you know, only been on veg a month, all right, sort of thing. So I worked on sauces. And I thought, well, I've done sauces for a month. I might just well become a sous chef. And luckily, it was had quite a high turnover of staff because it was quite tough. So anyway, I, I sort of, I think I did actually ask to be sous chef. I can't quite remember. But anyway, I became sous chef. I, I didn't dare ask to be head chef. Yeah. That was a bit, that was a bit. You, you just know. come into work and saying, I own this restaurant. Yeah, you know? yeah. But then you become so American, you know how to do it. This is my place. So that taught me the American way. Go get it. You know, a career in, in restaurant kitchens doesn't, automatically translate into food writing no it's quite a leap yes it is how, how did you get to that well I, I like a lot of young chefs I knew that I wanted to own my own restaurant and I had uh, started really in America thinking about how to do this and over a period of time I decided that I really had to do it and so I went back into temping in restaurants and uh, things like that while I tried to set up a restaurant and I this was I can't remember the year but it was the time of business expansion scheme. This was a means the government had businesses raising money to start up and most of the money went into the property. In restaurants at that time, I wanted to be in Soho by people like Alistair Little and to buy a restaurant cost about half a million pounds. I mean, it was a huge amount of money even then. And I had Norman Foster actually agreed to design it for me. And we had this, I had, I just had, I mean, it was an incredible thing. And I designed all the recipes and how I wanted it. And it was, uh, even now, I think it's quite innovative what I was planning to do. Might tell you later. <laughs> and uh, and um, then we had Black Monday and everything collapsed. And just before we were to raise the shares, so that it was, for, fell apart. So I went and worked for somebody else as their head chef. 
and really couldn't settle down um, setting up a, a restaurant. And somebody offered me, while I was looking for jobs, said, why don't you go and work on the Good Food Guide? And the editor was a guy called Drew Smith. He was running a magazine called Taste at that time. And he heard that I'd coming in. Actually, it wasn't the Good Food Guide. He'd left it, and I forgot what the name of the guide was that I was suggested to go to. Anyway, I wasn't very good at being a restaurant reviewer because I was too sympathetic to the chefs. <laughs> but Drew Smiths knew who I was because of the reputation from restaurants, and he said, why don't you come and work on the magazine for taste? And I said, well, I don't know if I can write. He said, don't worry, if you can't, we'll fire you after three months and we'll just use your ideas. So I thought, great. <laughs> so, and the only problem with this was I only, because I wore chef's whites all the time and I only had two dresses. It was the height of summer. So I used to alternate my dresses each day because I thought, that's all right, I'm not wearing the same thing every day. <laughs> I got quite a lot of remarks from the very small office staff that we were. But it wasn't as bad as Drew, who used to dry his socks in the microwave when it was wet. <laughs> so, oh anyway, but it was a great, great experience and I just fell in love with it. It, and that was my break and I'd always wanted to write and it allowed me to express all the ideas that I've been formulating as a chef what I've been doing as a chef which was British food also fusion food I was doing fusion food at that time because your first your first book came out I mean you Very quite quickly, quickly yeah. you, you got yeah. an offer to do your first cookbook and that was the the British book the British modern British food modern British, yeah, yeah which was with Michael Joseph and Penguin yeah. which was so revolutionary I mean now yeah. that we say to someone you know if we will say to you modern British then you can think about three restaurants in your vicinity that do that you will know what will be on the menu mm. but it's it wasn't like that then. it wasn't like that no, at no, all no I mean you were pretty much I think I was the first person to really define it and capture it for that that period and I got a lot of flack on the first book people said it wasn't British because I'd included pasta and I included pizza and I'd subdivided it in a way that I thought defined British food through the ages and, and through through our culture and our, our literature as well but uh, people like Nigel Slater and things actually said you know quietly to me I said you know you can't put pasta in and I said but it's always we were eating it before potatoes you know potatoes were people hated potatoes when they came in and they were eating macaroni but anyway they didn't believe that so I uh, basically had to write another book called Simply British <laughs> just to prove the point and also I, it was the first book to really reintroduce the concept of seasonality there had been writers before me but about 20 years before and people had sort of People have very short memories in the food writing yeah, world. Yeah, it's true. They forget. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, it is, you know, it, it's again, it's like for us, as you say, like seasonal food, British vegetables mm. or local food. Mm. It's almost a buzzword. You don't hear it because it's yeah. so obvious. But it is, you know, it wasn't obvious at it the time. It wasn't. I mean, it the, wasn't. It, it, I think it was all bubbling up. I mean, Henrietta Green, for example... She did two guides on food around Britain, which were revolutionary because they suddenly started showing people that there were artisan producers out there. And that really captured people's imaginations. And chefs start, were starting to, people like Sally Clark were. And yeah. I, I think um, Simon Hopkinson probably was and things, people like that. They were all trying to source things, but it was still quite hard. Yeah. And actually, for, for, for a chef, it's, it's quite an intuitive thing to do. You would look for the freshest, the best, because it's the tastiest and that makes your life easiest. Yes, but it wasn't but so to much to kind of farm. translate into a more kind of wider yes. cultural thing is, yes. is quite a leap. Yes, yes. Yeah. Supermarkets weren't doing it. They were still buying in from abroad whatever was cheapest. They weren't really sourcing British that much British food, I mean, just in the height of season. And the growing seasons have extended now much more yeah. in Britain than they were then. And the, and the variety as well. Yeah. But this is, 
again, I think your your two next book, and this is you know, and actually this one that came out. The first one is that I want to talk about is taste, and mm. the second one is citrus and spice, which is about flavor, which is a distinction that not not a lot of people understand. No. Because how many people here know the difference between taste and flavor? Ooh, silence. <laughs> yeah. It's very simple, but it, I mean, obviously, you can use the word, the same word for, you know, for it's interchangeable in common English, but the actual meaning is very distinct. And the simplest way is to do a simple thing, but I'll explain first. So, taste is to do with only water-soluble things, and you only have five tastes, literally, as far as we know. So, you have sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami. And when I wrote taste, people didn't even weren't sure that umami was a taste. I had to fight to get it in the book, and it had been proved scientifically. So anything that you chew that releases those five elements that only come through water in your saliva to your taste buds, and you're born with all five tastes, you can taste them. Flavour is actually smell, and so it's released by airborne compounds which go up as you chew through your nose, and so it's actually so that's what flavour is. And those you can develop, so you you learn throughout your life, and there are thousands of different flavours. And the easiest way to test it is a bit mean, but you get a bay leaf and you crush the bay leaf and sniff it, and that you you recognise that what you call bay leaf flavour. It's very very recognisable. But if you were to take a tiny bite of that bay leaf, you'd find that it's really really bitter, and that is the taste, and it's completely different from the flavour. And it's the same with lemons. You know, you've got the juice is sour, but if you squeeze a little bit of the zest, resist it, that's the flavour. Yeah, and this is actually a lot of what we use for flavoring and seasoning are, in a way, tasteless. You know, they wouldn't yes. be salty. Yes. Let's say yes. I'm, I'm looking at the spices <laughs> behind you, but a lot of them are just an aroma to food. They, and it's a really hard distinction to make, even if it, your palate is very, very trained. It, it is hard, although every single food, I think, virtually has a taste. We may not really be aware of it because we're adding something really small. And it's further complicated by the idea that a lot of spices or flavours are also chemically active. So capsaicin, irritants, different things like cloves, um, Szechuan pepper, um, piperine, things like that. They all act on you in a chemical way, which has a different effect as well. Which isn't taste or flavour. Which isn't taste or flavour, yes. Yeah, I mean, this is... uh, (laughs) But you don't need to worry about that. (laughs) But this is, again, it sounds sounds very studious and very maybe cerebral, but actually it's something that you instinctively know if you're even, you know, the most basic cook is something that you understand. You know, if you make a bechamel sauce and you know I'll put a bay leaf inside and know it will taste nicer and then I take it out. It's it's something that's, you you don't really understand the mechanics of it. But you do know yes. the, the, the practice. And that's why I wrote Taste, because actually I think most chefs are very, very instinctive. And I'm quite ex- it's an emotional feel of how you're going to cook, how you feel about something, and you're mentally ma- matching things in your head. Or some chefs are. You, know, you think, oh, that'll work. But you don't really analyse how you're doing that. And because I was writing a lot of recipes in journalism for magazines and things like that, um, and books, I was beginning to start to analyse how I actually perceived things and why I was thinking that this went with that. When you do journalism and you do cookery writing, you don't have much opportunity to really research something because it's quite a high turnover. You have to get things in very quickly. 
But with a book, you have the luxury that you can research, and I love doing that. And so that was, it was my excuse to learn things. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So the, this is kind of the result of, the, of this curiosity yes. or yes. the insect? Because when you say cooking with the senses, I mean, it's such a huge proposition. Well, it's, it's a result of two things. The first is actually... Katie Cowan at Pavilion, who are my editors, asked me whether I wanted to write a wordy book. She said, because all books these days are beautiful. They have lots and lots of photographs. They have wonderful recipes, and they're really exciting to cook from. But the fashion for books which have a lot more copy in them where you read and less photography, less than there used to be. She wanted to reintroduce that element into, cookbook, into their cookbook list. So she said, what would you like to write? And my husband uh, has been nagging me for a long time to put down my theory of food, because I'm always saying, you know, I think this, or I think that. And he's a neurologist. And he said, you've got to write your theory of food. And my theory of food was basically about how we all have five senses, um, as in sight, smell, touch, taste, sound. <laughs> But when we're cooking, and uh, they, they, they all come into play. From the moment you pick up something in your hands, you, which is touch, you're starting to interpret. How you look at something, you're interpreting. And the book was an excuse to really analyse that and see how it really worked in cooking. And if you turn it round and look at it in terms of how the book was structured, taste is obviously the, one of the first things that you have to think about in a recipe. You then have to think about flavour, which is how it's really affecting your memory because flavour is directly linked to your emotions and your memories, so how you're making people feel. And then how do you translate that? So that comes into texture, how you chop something up, how it's divided, you know, whether it's one thing. We were talking about this earlier. So if you eat an ice cream or you eat a soup, a smooth soup, you're getting one blast of taste that's the same, all the same. So if you had, like, I don't know, a uh, sweet corn soup, it's sweet, 
basically. It might have a little sourness if you've got lemon in it. But every mouthful is the same. It's not going to change because the texture is the same in your mouth. And so that remains the same. But if you have a chunky soup like a chowder, every taste is different because you're getting different elements and different mix each time you take a spoonful because you're breaking it up and releasing the flavours and the taste in your mouth in different ways. And it's the same, so if you chop something up for stir-fry, you're eating it small bits with, with your chopsticks. If you shove something on a fork, you're mushing it together and you're getting a different experience. So all of these things were coming in, the sound of how it I'm tastes. you really hungry when you talk <laughs> <Exactly>. right now. <laughs> Is it just me? Uh, no, it's like, we're all like, oh, like really. there's food, there's food. Yeah, don't I worry. I get really excited and I talk faster and faster. <laughs> and then temperature, because that affects our perceptions of taste and texture and everything else. And then appearance. And what I realized as I wrote the book was I hadn't really thought about the texture. I hadn't thought about how things really looked um, and because I had to analyse it and break it down to make it things that people could actually cook and test and how they'd learn from that. And this, this is what I, 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 I really was, was wondering, when I, even you know, as I was flicking through, and there, it's so interesting because it's things that you, you, you kind of you know but you never thought about, like the, the bit about the, the beetroot salad which we made for you that you say, okay, if you slice the beetroot into wedges, then, you know, it breaks up nicely on your tongue and then you taste it differently. And if it's finely diced, you hardly taste anything at all. And I was like, yes, <laughs> but I, I didn't yeah. even thought about it. So I didn't think about I, it until I wrote the book. <laughs> <laughs> but how did you start working on it? Like, how, how would you break it down? Well, would you, you, you come into the kitchen or you sit by the... Well, I write the initial recipe. Um, so uh, I think, I can't remember which chapter that's in. Is it in appearance? Yes. It's in appearance. So it was to do, I think it was to do with seasonality. So I was wanted to illustrate what are the elements of appearance of seasonality. But then I, the whole point about the book is that I think anybody, myself included, you only learn something if you do it. It's a practical experience, and that's how we all learn. But it's got to be fun to do as well. And I wanted it to be something that, I mean, I use it for supper, whatever, and I wanted everybody else to use it for supper. So when I did the salad, so I did the salad as I wanted to do the salad, and then I thought, well, how, you know, how would it alter in texture if I changed the texture? What would happen? And then I sort of thought about it, and I thought, well, actually, obviously, if you think about how it was released in your mouth, it would be different, and that's what I wanted everybody else to think about. And a classic example is a feta, a Greek, a Greek salad, because you can easily just vary the chunk sizes, big or, or small, and you'll get a very, very different experience in terms of eating that salad. Or like whether you add oil or not, because like an Indian salad is like um, it's like cucumber, radish, and a fruit like apple or pear dressed in lemon. If you add oil to that, like a slightly making it slightly Western, it will linger in your... All the flavours will linger more in your mouth because it contains fat and they coat your mouth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... It's, it's, it's endless. <laughs> but this is what I'm saying. Yeah. It's so endless. Yeah. And it's, so, it's such a vast subject. Just trying to contain it all. I know. How how, how do you how did you start? Did you have kind of the chapter? I had a deadline. The deadline. <laughs> I, had, I had a deadline. I had a deadline and I had um, I had a... I actually worked out, I mean, I, I'm quite methodical, so I worked out how many recipes I was going to have in the book um, because I knew, knew what the page count was going to be and then that depends on how long the recipe is. So I knew roughly sort of how many, so then that subdivided into the chapters. But I wanted to be a starting point for everyone. It's, uh, the idea is really, and you know, that you, it starts you thinking and then you can go on and experiment and do whatever you want. And I've got lots of little, like, teeny-weeny experiments all the way through. Uh, like, a classic one is toast. 
So you put two pieces of toast in the toaster, take them out, butter them really fast, eat the first one fast when it's hot, and then eat the other one when it's gone slightly tepid, and see how, they ch- how they're different. And you'll find that they are different. I mean, they really do have a slightly different flavour and texture, and, you know, I like the hot one, but, you know... <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot to be said yeah. for old toast. I have to say, <laughs> there is, but this, is, yeah, yeah, I mean, this is this is what it's about. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not kind of, and this is, you know, it's not. Uh, this is better than that. It's no. just there is a difference, but know how to to and achieve that, that difference. That was the other big message I wanted to get across, which is there's no right or wrong. Lots of people say you've got to do something this way, you've got to do something that way, or oh, that sounds horrible. Why are you doing it? There's no such thing as good or bad. It's what you like or don't like that counts. Now, obviously, if you like something and your friends really hate what you like, you can't give it to them, but that doesn't mean you can't eat it yourself. And you shouldn't condemn yourself. You should trust your senses. Because if you like it, it's good for you. Uh, I mean, is this, this is an, another thing that I, I, you know, kind of my insight from the book is, yes, it's very studious and it's very interesting and kind of cerebral but never ever do do you feel that you're being taught the joy of cooking the joy of eating is always it just screams out of the page (laughs) and it it does you know because you know no you don't want to be kind of taught or preached but this is just such a joyous celebration of of, you (laughs) you know the the enjoyment of food cooking it serving it eating it well i'll tell you Uh, a secret actually in relation to that which is that when i wrote taste I found it very, it was also very heavily researched and I found it really stressful to write because I, was, I felt that I might get really shot down in flames and I was really, really nervous about it. And every, every book I've written since, my husband said, for God's sake, you know, don't get stressed out with it. <laughs> now, in this particular book, he could see that it was going to be a stressful book. So I, I wrote a pledge <laughs> on a little gift label which I hung on the wardrobe for him and I said I promise well, you have my word of honour I will enjoy this book writing this book and I will not get stressed I get divorced <laughs> actually we were never threatened divorce but what we were threatened he said I'm going to destroy your computer if you, if you don't and, uh, which, which will amount to a which divorce amount. yeah <laughs> Eventually, which is why uh, hopefully that's why it's come through. No, I mean, but it really does. But did you enjoy it? I did. Yes, I did most yeah. of it. Yeah, there were some stressful bits later, like proofreading and things. But yeah, yeah, the, the painful bits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's. I mean, it's a very, very joyous affair. Yeah. And is what? How? How do you, you've answered this a little bit, but but elaborate a little bit more about how you want you know, us and these guys to to, to use it. To, what do you want this yes. book to be? I mean. This book is researched and it is, you know, I have looked into things a bit um, to see. But what I really did throughout this book was actually test everything on myself. And one of the things is that I really found with it was that it enriched my life in a way that it made it, and this sounds a bit pretentious and forgive me, but the, a joy of being alive and a joy of eating and cooking. And to give an example, one of the things you know I want everybody to do is go around and sniff their environment. <laughs> now, sometimes that's not very pleasant in London. Yeah. <laughs> but it makes you feel alive. And the whole thing is there are good things and there are bad things all around you. But you're aware, if you're suddenly analysing what am I smelling around me, or you're looking at what colours are around me, are, are they conveyed when I go in a market or what I put on the plate? 
all how does something smell how does it feel it makes you aware of yourself and being alive and that's a joy you know to be honest and so I want to get rid of all the sort of snobby pretension that's you know is in some food writing and some elements of eating and cooking and just say love it enjoy it you know and that's what I really want people to take away to have fun I mean I, I certainly did and actually I'm very aware of there's so much in this book that we haven't discussed yet you know I, I loved the the side bit about you know your little piece about food and Instagram which is so interesting <laughs> and so funny I, I, I just you know I cannot recommend this I, I, I read it back to back oh, I really you. really enjoyed it <laughs> Cooking from it is a delight. I think you will find out. We have made, um, we've made the pork and spinach meatballs, which I've tried in the book launch, and I loved so much. And I just, you know, I had to have them again. <laughs> so delicious. Yes. And there is a little experiment in the book for for every if somebody wants to try. It, it definitely should. But there are two experiments, different flavorings and things to see if you. Can yeah, and seeing yeah. how you can take the yeah. same kind of basic recipe into very so you put lemon zest in or lemon zest out how it changes your perception of meaty flavors and like if you add more umami which is like adding a tiny bit of diced bacon and, and parmesan into the meatball so it just changes how you perceive things yeah and we made that beetroot salad we made the salad that this is what when we always when we prepare for these talks we go through the books and we say okay what do we want to cook and then we saw this salad of, of cucumber and tomatoes and raw cauliflower. And I said, how does that compute? We have to do this. <laughs> and it's, ama- it's so delicious. It's so delicious. I mean, we have already, me and Sarit have already a box under the counter for our dinner. But there's enough for everyone. There is enough for everyone. And we've made the beautiful spiced hazelnut biscuits. That They look amazing. I haven't tried yet, but I sincerely hope that I'll get to seeing you guys I don't think that I will and after all this talk, you know we're all kind of listening to you talk about food is so or you know I, I can see these guys everyone's like feed me now but before we do does anyone have any questions thoughts feelings or emotions that you want to share with the group or direct to Sybil now is your time I will need to repeat the questions for the recording's sake yeah yes Louisa So we'll tell us a little bit about uh, the role of sound in cooking. Well, sound um, is, again, a fascinating area. I mean, obviously, it wasn't something I'd really thought about. I, think about. I thought about it in terms of how food is cooking and how sounds change as food cooks and it tells you what something, how ready something is, the difference in sizzling things. But what I hadn't really appreciated and, and what there is an enormous amount of scientific research into is how much sound influences our pleasure or our distaste of food. And a lot of that is very cultural. So, for example, in Britain, we love the fact that crisp packets pop open. And I suspect, you know, ready-mixed salad bags and things, you know, also the pop, it indicates to us that it's fresh. And in Britain, we love crisp, crunchy noises and, like, twiglets and, um, uh, well, I like all raw vegetables, and I really like making a lot of noise. Um, <laughs> much to my husband's distress. He's Indian and he likes nice, soft, quiet noises. Um, But in Japan or China, it's actually good to make lots of slurpy noises. And so, you know, when people are like uh, having uh, their noodles or something, it's actually considered polite to sort of go, you know, to suck the noodles up. 
And that uh, also brings in air and it's culturally absolutely acceptable whereas we would find that appalling when people make noises drinking their tea like that or soup or whatever so it's it's very variable where, where it is i'm trying to think of oh yeah and also just if you uh, you know when you're making things i would say that you think about what sound it makes uh test it out on your friends and uh, see what people find pleasure in because it's going to increase their pleasure so if they snap something like a breadstick that might give them more pleasure well, they might like my husband and they didn't want it to snap. <laughs> <laughs> Quiet food. Quiet food, yeah. yeah, it's a chewy cookie. I think all the places that you've worked, you can now look back at any particular place and think they were using sight, smell, touch, taste, sound to the way you've now sort of explored it. In, in sort of 10 years ago, 15 years ago, has, has there been anyone that's been influential in this book where you've worked that has sort of nailed it? Well, I've been writing as a food writer since 91, so no, it's a short answer. <laughs> I don't, no, I don't think anywhere I, met, I worked influenced me in, in the concepts of how the senses work. I think that came from my own thinking, really. But I think that, all, that everyone cooks like that. So it's just that we're not necessarily aware of it. Um, or some people are more aware than others. I mean, I've had people sort of tweet me things, so this is how I think about cooking. Um, so, and I hadn't thought about it fully until the last few years. So, but I, it, it's an instinctive thing. So it's more just drawing it out and saying that's there. But I think where people did influence me in restaurants, and in particular in jams and uh, to a lesser degree Clark's, was this whole concept of having local food and having food in a much more freeform, relaxed way. And I'd say that Japanese food has really influenced me. And the, the books that I came across as a chef then as well, like those Chinese books and Japanese books about their philosophies, behind how they cook because particularly in both cultures obviously originated in China was a tremendous belief in, in how texture influences things and how you alter things but it must seem as though it's natural and this was a very interesting idea to me that it would be natural and yet you've done something like blanching something just to change the texture or remove bitterness so there were lots of ideas that with the seeds were there but it's taken me rather a long time <laughs> to get to the stage now this is the book we were talking about, Sight, Smell, Touch, Taste, Sound, by the amazing Sibyl Kapoor. I want you please to join me with a big, big hand to this amazing woman. Thanks so much for listening to our latest episode of The Honey and Cook. If you'd like to join one of the next talks, please follow us on social media at Honey & Co. or go on our website, honeyandco.co.uk. We would really appreciate if you took some time and rated us at iTunes. Only five stars, please. With a huge thanks to Hester Kant for producing. And the music is by the lovely Alice Russell. Thanks for listening. Bye, Felicia's. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 